Hey, and welcome back to The Offspring Magazine, the podcast. I'm your new host, Marcel, and this is the first part of my conversation with Dr. Katharina Höfer. Dr. Katharina Höfer leads the Bacterial Epitranscriptomics Group at the MPI for Terrestrial Microbiology in Marburg. In this episode, we discuss her unique career path, how she fell in love with RNA, and then dive right into her work. She's been part of a team that discovered a particular kind of modified RNAs, called NADRNAs. And we discuss why RNA modifications are of interest and talk about her contributions to the field. Since the COVID pandemic, RNA has been pretty much in the spotlight of the general public. This episode is the first in a series of interviews on the topic of RNA. The aim is to paint a broader picture of RNA regulation and function in biology, and to show how amazing RNA really is. I hope you'll enjoy this. So I'm very happy to welcome Dr. Katharina Höfer, and I'm extremely excited to talk to you today about your academic trajectory in general, and of course, epitranscriptomics. And, you know, I personally have a list of like topics that I might find interesting to study in my postdoc. And when I came across your research on NAD RNAs and RNA relations, I was Like really immediately hooked and yeah, started thinking about how I myself can apply this to neurons. So I'm very excited to learn more and I'm very happy to talk to you today. Um, so yeah, but first things first, let's start by talking a bit about how you got where you are today. So um, what got you interested in science in the first place? So thank you, Marcel. For, for hosting me today. I mean, it's for me a wonderful possibility to share a little bit about our research here as part of this post a podcast. Um, why I got interested in science, I think that started really early days when I was three or four years old, where I was always quite curious. Probably I also got on the nurse of my parents. <clears throat> But I was always the one who was playing outside, putting things together and see what happens. And I think that never ended until today. And when I then went to school, I always realized that, yeah, natural sciences are these things that are easy going for me. I don't need to do anything. I'm just curious uh, about the things that I'm just learning there. And so it was clear for me already in 10th class that I will proceed in that kind of direction. Either I'm learning a job or I'm really going for studying and doing an academic way. And I think when it comes to becoming interested in science, uh, the environment where you're growing up is highly important. So the people that are surrounding you, they are shaping you. And it's the family, their friends, but especially when you're in school, these are also teachers. And I must say that these teachers, they, one of them was really encouraging me. I said, you know, Katarina, there are nice study programs which are quite interdisciplinary. 
And I was like, what is interdisciplinary at this time? (laughs) (laughs) And so I didn't have any idea, but he gave me uh, some some things, uh, some brochures. I mean, still internet was there, but it's not as it was or as it is today. And so I was just reading a little bit about new study programs, which were just popping up. It was the time when bachelor's and master's were coming. And so I just decided to really go for some interdisciplinary study programs, which are dealing with biology, chemistry, physics, informatics. And I think this was one of the key parts in my career that in principle were bringing me actively into science and were also motivating me finally to do that. Yeah. I think it's so important that you stress that you need a supportive environment also to maybe get the courage to pursue science as well, because I think that's what many people lack. And that's also where teachers in general are so important. Yeah, I think that's that's something really important um, to to already go also as scientists to go to schools to encourage people to to show what you can actually do. And um, when I was in school, I really didn't have any idea about uh, science, how this really works, uh, how you can study, let's say, biology, what kind of topics are important. So you need to have someone who is really pushing you in that direction and also give you a certain support that you are also keen to do that in the end. And that that was really helpful in the end for me to to really go into that direction. I think uh, without that teacher, I would never have done that. Great. That's great to hear. Um, What did you then eventually end up studying? So this was also something that uh, a lot of things just happened by chance. <laughs> so I just started to apply to more or less everything, uh, which was out there, classical biology, uh, biochemistry. And I also saw some study programs which were just popping up, uh, was called life sciences. Okay, I didn't have any clue about that. Um, and that was in Hannover at this time. It was a really small study program, just 20 people. And in the end, it was molecular biology focusing, biochemistry focusing, but also organic chemistry and a little bit anorganic chemistry and physical chemistry, informatics, and a little piece of physics, which is in the classical first semester. And this was something where I was ending up because it was just 20 people and it was not this clear biology program. So I never had botanics or zoology, but we really went into the molecular biology, but I also had really organic chemistry courses. I was synthesizing organic compounds. Um, I was kind of a chemist, but I was also kind of a biologist, just kind of half, half. That sounds to me super interesting because it kind of already set you up for studying RNAs, even though you hadn't discovered your yeah, passion for RNAs back then, right? Not, not at all. I mean, this was a quite tough study program at this time. Uh, but I also learned that I really love chemistry, but I also really love molecular biology. Um, and that is definitely worse to, to bring this together. 
Um, I mean, this was from 2005 to 2008. I think there was already obvious that it might be really important to work interdisciplinary and to have also people around that are able, let's say, to talk to a chemist, but still have a biology background or vice versa, or even to talk to a real inf uh, to informaticians to, to tell them what kind of code you actually need to analyze your huge data sets. So that was really early days, but for me, that was obvious that this might be, uh, for me at least, really important and might pave the way for other future scientific careers. Um, nevertheless, after that, when I finished that bachelor, actually, I did something totally unconventional. Uh, I decided to go for industry. So after these three years, I felt like it's time to look what was your study program good for. And so I, I left academia. So I left Hannover and I went to a small company at this time. It was called Miltony Biotech. Right now there are company with more than 500 uh, people working there. And they are developing methods to sort cells, to really specifically fish for specific cell types. And <clears throat> I was just applying there to do their half-year internship, but I wanted to go for the research and development department. And so I was a young kind of student still with a bachelor degree for industry. Bachelor was something that they had no idea about. Uh, they were not expecting nothing, <laughs> I must say. <laughs> Um, but th this was for me one of the most important decisions I ever did because I could see a totally different way of thinking in that industry. And it was also a lot of fun for me to work there. I had my own project. I was working there in the R&D. I was presenting my, my work. I was really a team member and I had a wonderful PI, again, a person who was also pushing me forward and who was supporting me. And um, there was a really cool way to, to also have a different perspective on science, not only the academic view, but also the industry view. Is, is there anything in particular that you would say you learned back then that you now always also try to implement in your academic research? Yeah, completely. I think um, industry definitely works different than academic research. I usually say that it takes me three weeks to adopt the other way of thinking. <laughs> uh, so from one to another or back. So from industry to academics and vice versa, because everything is completely structured. Um, everything has an SOP, uh, a specific procedure that you need to adopt, that you need to Uh, proceeds you need to write every you need to write down every number of every chemical you are using that everything is completely transparent and documented and i actually like the way how they are doing it i didn't like to write down all the numbers uh, <laughs> but i really like that they have specific procedures uh, to make also their work more reproducible And this is something I just adopted also in my lab now, that they really have classical procedures, which are always the same, that we are getting more reproducible. 
And that is also an easier way to onboard people. If you have specific structures in your group, I think this was something that I really learned there. This I never really saw during my study programs. <clears throat> Otherwise, I mean, it's also science, right? I was in the R&D department, so you have a scientific question or they have a scientific question and you try to address that. Um, I think that this is something of the positive sides, uh, something that you have in industries for sure, that you have a specific topic you want, you need to go for because it's the interest of the company. So there is some freedom to have own thoughts, but still you need to go in that one direction. That's positive or probably a little bit more negative, depending what you're looking for. Nevertheless, I, I like that time in industry. And also the, I was completely open also during the time afterwards to go into different small companies and to work there. So that was not the only stop in the industry in my career. Um, because I really appreciated also their their really organized way of of working. Okay, great. So, but in this phase between your bachelor's and your master's, you also had a second research experience, right? And this is where you fell in love with RNA. Exactly. So tell us more about this. <clears throat> yeah, that was actually directly after I uh, so I after half a year I quit it uh, at Milton Biotech. Uh, left that company and directly went to the German Primate Center in in Göttingen. And at this time, there was still a GmbH, it's called in Germany, so it's, it's still kind of a smaller, yeah, kind of company, you can name it even. Now they're part of the Leibniz uh, Society. And the German Primate Center, uh, I was there in the virology department. I never had been before in biology. There are safety level three labs. Uh, and I was working on HIV. I also never worked before in HIV. <clears throat> But I mean, it was a time where I was just having all the freedom I ever wanted to have and just to do research that might be interesting for me or even not. And so I came into a team where they were doing HIV research, but they were combining this with RNA. And at this time, we were searching, it was 2009, for, we were searching for small RNAs in the HIV. Uh, so I was concentrating the HIV virus, <clears throat> and then I established their protocols to isolate the RNA. I mean, RNA, I don't need to explain anymore because we are half in Germany right now, more than 80 million RNA experts, I guess, based <laughs> on our corona pandemic. More or less, yeah. Depends on what you call an expert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Before we were always training uh, the football league. Uh, now we're yeah. the RNA experts. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, so I... I had really the goal to, to isolate RNAs from HIV, which are probably there. That was just an hypothesis. And I was completely alone on that project and just had the PI who was then kind of supervising me. But he was giving me so much freedom. So I was able to, to develop complete protocols for next generation sequencing in the end to identify those RNAs. That was always combined with a lot of failure. 
So a lot of things were not working directly from the first scratch, but it allowed me also really to test myself, to, to develop ideas and hypotheses. And in the end, we had an RNA sample in our hands and we wanted to submit this to uh, next generation sequencing. These were really the early days of next generation sequencing. So we kicked it out to New Zealand, <laughs> <laughs> which is insane. Wow. Um, and we sent it out to New Zealand. I think it took half a year to get the data, so really long. But in the end, we found there are some small RNAs that are part of the HIV virus, and it also got published. I mean, standing there somewhere on that paper. Uh, for me, that was amazing because it was my first connection with RNA and somehow I fall in love. It was really something um, where I felt like this is a really interesting molecule. Um, this might have so many different functions in a cell. Um, yeah, and I just fall in love. Sometimes those feelings you can't describe, right? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. But I'm wondering, what did you do to convince your PIs with a bachelor's, back then when bachelor's weren't even a big thing, to give you so much responsibility and really like, work so independently? Because it sounds like you were so lucky to have a lot of independence and freedom from the beginning on. Yeah. <clears throat> so from my perspective now, this is also really surprising. Uh, it feels like a really wonderful gift that I had at this time. Um, both of the PIs that I had at this time, so at the company, but also at the German Primate Center, they were quite young. Um, and we had a wonderful supportive team. So I think it was clear that I'm not swimming there alone. But they were always, always giving trust in myself uh, and said, you know, if it does not work, it is like it is, then we try it differently. Just give it a shot. And they also were making me confident. And I think this is also something that is highly important when you're doing an experiment. You also need to be a little bit confident that this will work. Um, and also to, to give me the feeling that even if it fails, it's not a disaster. And we also learned something. Yeah, that's so important. And so I never had this this bad impression, okay, everything is fails and the day is just really shitty. No, it's not at all. So it was like the experiment failed. So this is not the way how it works. And <clears throat> I think this was something which was really important to learn. And this is also something that I give now to my own team members. And, and tell them, you know, we're doing experiments. They can fail, and that's okay. Otherwise, we should not do this experiment, right? Yes, yes, definitely. I think that's that's so important also. I think I see a real difference between supervisors that blame their students if something goes wrong versus those that accept that experiments can fail and then try to find the reasons For, for the experiment failing and try to find solutions for for the problem. So I think that's like very important. I mean, even failing, uh, if an experiment fails, you can also learn so much from that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think uh, a lot of great discoveries were just made by just some failed experiments. Mm -hmm. 
definitely. And so, yeah, that's the beauty of science that we can do those experiments and see how it works. And yeah, in the end, so this one year that I did in between, so this gap kind of um, was one of the best decisions I ever did in my scientific career, for sure. Um, it was giving me so much confidence to really see, okay, science is what I really want to do. I've fallen in love with RNA. Um, but it was also clear when I finished in Göttingen at the German Primate Center that I need to do the next step. So that was definitely obvious. So I want to stay there. So I need a master degree. Okay, so you had already fallen in love with RNAs. You wanted to pursue this passion further. So you went for a master's in Heidelberg, right? Molecular Biotechnology or Molecular Biotechnology. And like further worked on RNA. Right. But um, maybe before we talk about your research you started doing there, I think it's important to establish for everyone what it actually was that kept you going with RNA, or maybe in other words, why we as a society in general should even care about RNAs. Because I think in school we have this very big focus on proteins in general There are rightly so many people that focus on proteins and we learn that proteins are those little machines that actually do stuff in our cells. So why should we care about RNAs that most only see as a copy of our DNA? I, I think this is now changing a lot. I mean, I completely agree when I was in school, when I was doing all these studies, um, everything was about the DNA proteins and RNAs were really the classical side project. Um, even when I was doing my PhD, RNA was still one of those topics where people always said RNA is so instable, RNA, no, we don't want to work with RNA. Um, so there were only uh, several teams in the world who were really going for RNA research. And This is now changing based on our corona pandemic, right? Um, so um, I never observed such a high interest into RNA research uh, before. Um, I started my lab here in, in Marburg in principle during the corona pandemic, but before the corona vaccine was really out there. Um, and I really realized that a lot of people are really now interested into RNA research. Um, not only scientists, also people, just normal citizens, school kids uh, that really want to, to learn something about it. And I mean, one way is really now also to change textbooks, also to change study programs, to give them more possibilities for RNA lectures. Right now I'm, I'm trying to do this here in Marburg to to also really give uh, lectures about DNA and RNA, also not only um, about functions, also on the biochemistry level to really understand what is actually RNA. And um, what I usually go for also in schools to, to teach schools about what is actually RNA. And nice. Nice. when I just go there, I first of all start to explain it. You know, RNA is in principle are just four building blocks. It's like 
playing Legos. You have four blocks and you can put them together as you want to. Actually, the RNA is much simpler in its composition than proteins. Yeah, because you just have these four Lego building blocks, one yellow, one green, one blue, one red, and you put them in different combinations to each other. And then you get your, yeah, kind of a, a map or a construct, construction map for the proteins. So the RNA is actually the central player to, to get the proteins. Without any RNA, you get don't get a protein. And so this was something um, I think we, we need to, to push this more forward. We scientists need to also go into schools to explain what is this actually and to also bring this down to a level that a lot of people can understand what we are actually doing. Yeah, yeah, that's so important. And I think also the Lego block analogy works quite well. So um, that's a really good way of thinking about it. Um, so when you moved to Heidelberg to study molecular biotechnology, you basically focused on RNA from the beginning on, right? So what else did you learn about RNA basically in your masters and what did you then end up doing as a research project? Yeah, I mean, this molecular biotechnology program is again a study program uh, which I have chosen because it was at this time the only study program where I had kind of certain freedom. Uh, I mean, after being in industry and having one year of this real freedom to do research, it was clear for me that I can't go back into a defined study program where I have lectures, uh, courses with 16 people, whatever. So I need to have a program where I can really do research. And in Heidelberg, that was perfect fit. Um, they were also focusing on three different topics. So it was not only biotechnology, it was uh, biophysical chemistry, it was bioinformatics and drug design. And that was highly attractive for me. So I was not only sticking to the RNA because I felt like you need to get now kind of a toolbox on your hands to learn different techniques that might be once important. And so I even went to crystallographers to, in principle, to characterize structures of proteins. So I even made it again to the proteins and not sticking to the RNA. Um, I went to people who were doing microscopy. I mean, the beauty of microscopy is wonderful. You can have a look inside a cell, can really visualize what is there. That's so amazing. Um, but I also went into a lab And again, here I felt like it needs to be, again, a little bit interdisciplinary. Uh, this time there was the Jeschke lab. Andres Jeschke is a chemist by training. Um, they are doing nucleic acid chemistry. So they were not doing nucleic acid biology. They were doing nucleic acid chemistry. There were plenty of chemists who were synthesizing from morning till evening different nucleic acids. So all these Lego building blocks that we have in the RNA. And they are modifying those Lego building blocks. Probably some of them have a round shape. Some of them have a, a yellow corner or whatever. So they are really can play around with those Lego building blocks. And I felt this might be a cool environment to use the knowledge you have gained over the last years and to interact with chemists, but doing there the biology. So I went there just for an internship 
also to get to know the get to know the team and it was really a wonderful scientific environment because I got there again what I always had the kind of freedom to do research but also a person who was trusting in all the knowledge that I have uh, and this was actually also then finally my former uh, PhD supervisor because I just stayed there also for the PhD um, because he was a chemist, I was a biotechnologist, and we were really uh, interacting with each other. He gave a lot of trust in the knowledge that I have. I could do whatever I want in that lab. I was establishing protein purifications because there were chemists. Um, I was uh, doing all the cloning, all the biochemistry work, uh, radioactive work with RNA. And so we were really a powerful team to combine the chemistry knowledge and the molecular biology with each other. And only by combining this, um, we were able to address totally novel questions in science. Cool. Okay, so this lab is also the lab where you started working on epitranscriptomics. So maybe you can just give a like short definition of what maybe transcriptomics in general is, then going beyond transcriptomics, what epitranscriptomics is. And maybe, um, yeah, you can just provide a few examples so people can really understand what epitranscriptomics is about. Yeah, so first we can start with the transcriptomics. Uh, so transcriptomics is quite simple um, because transcripts are is an, a different name for RNA. Yeah, so these four building, uh, legal building blocks that are put together. And there are so many different transcripts, so many different RNAs that we want to analyze them. And this field to analyze these RNAs is called transcriptomics. Also, the methods that we use there to do this analysis. These are all put into the word transcriptomics. Epi is put in front of these transcriptomics because epi was usually thought to be everything that we do not understand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Probably some of you have also already heard uh, the word epigenetics. Uh, it's in principle everything that we don't know for the DNA because genetics is DNA. And epitranscriptomics is in principle everything that we do not know about RNA. But in principle, really... Uh, Basing, uh, we are based on the or we are focusing on the molecular composition of the RNA, bringing us back to the picture of the building blocks of the legal building blocks where we have those four colors. Uh, people realize that these four colors are actually not enough to build all these RNAs that finally lead to a protein in a cell. So you need to have different shapes of these Lego building blocks or different colors in addition. And right now, um, those four Lego building blocks are expanded to 170. So it's a huge mass of different building blocks that people have discovered. And all these people are working in that field of epitranscriptomics. So we are, it's really about studying um, the unknown, But right now, we already started to know a little bit. For me, it's quite uh, also just to add this. Um, when you have a look into the old books, people already started to study this in 1950. 
they did really early days, they really did a thin layer chromatography. So it's a method where you can just separate compounds. Uh, they were doing this with radioactive labels that they were putting there. And already in 1950, they already saw that these four Lego building blocks are not enough, that there's definitely more. But at this time, we didn't have the methods on our hands to study this, to identify what, what's the property of those novel building blocks. And right now, we have a lot of techniques established in the last couple of years, in the last century as well, to really go for it and to, to study the beauty of all these different legal building blocks in our RNA. Maybe in order to highlight the importance of studying this also in the medical context, could you um, maybe explain how this whole field or RNA modifications in general also relate to mRNA vaccines? Because I think many people don't know that the mRNA in the vaccines that we got is actually also modified. Yeah. The, so I think, again, this, this field of epitranscriptomics got also a huge push forward based on the uh, corona pandemic because it showed clearly the importance of these RNA modifications and the variety of those legal building blocks in our RNA. One wonderful example is a pseudouridine. So that sounds difficult, pseudouridine, uh, but in principle, it's also just a different color uh, of a legal building block. And this legal building block was discovered Yeah, already beginning of the 2000s by Kathleen Carrico. And she discovered that this building block is important, that the proteins are translated efficiently, but also that we have a reduced immune response. This was really fundamental science. There was no application. It was real fundamental science at this time. And... When people are coming to me or approaching me and asking, okay, why actually BioNTech was successful and the others were not because they were also using RNA, I usually tell them that's easy because BioNTech was, um, was able to use the pseudouridin, so this novel building block, and was putting this into the RNA. And this building block was the game changer. Thereby, this RNA was translated into proteins efficiently in our human bodies. And thereby, we got an immune response and we were, let's say, protected to some extent from corona. That was uh, really the game changer. And that was the most, one of the, for me at least, the most important discoveries in the last three to four years uh, to bring this fundamental science really into this application. Uh, and that was the game changer that BioNTech finally made it and uh, that we also got really fast this vaccination. There's also one other building block, which is usually at the beginning of an RNA. So an RNA has to, uh, a start and an end. And usually the start needs to be protected because such an RNA um, is really... Uh, can be degraded, can be split into single parts really, really fast. So it's, you can just imagine that you have everywhere around you small scissors, and these small scissors are able to cut the RNA at different positions. And to make these RNAs more stable, they need to have a cap, yeah, kind of a helmet 
and they wear it. And uh, this helmet or this cap is also just another Lego building block that we have at the start of the RNA. We scientists call it an M7G cap. Um, this is also a really important function, or it has an important function also that this RNA gets translated. Has been identified now more than 40 years ago already. Still, there are plenty of questions about it. But also in our corona vaccines, they were using this kind of cap to make the RNA more stable, to get it better translated in our cells so that proteins can, um, can be generated inside the cell. And I think these were really two important fundamental science discoveries, which paved the way finally to really start to develop mRNA-based vaccines. And as we are also now digging into that research direction more and more, it's really fascinating to see that this also kind of interdisciplinary research is highly important here to, to bring also RNA vaccines to the next level and to see what kind of novel Lego building blocks we probably might also put into the RNA to get the, let's say, the next generation RNA-based vaccines. So there's a lot of research right now going on there. Cool. Okay, now that we've already established what like epitranscriptomics is, which also medical application RNA modifications can have, and you also already talked about CAPS, um, let's really dive into your own research on NAD-capped RNAs. So first of all, what is NAD? And I'd also be interested to know why exactly did you start looking into this specific modification as opposed to any other of the hundreds of modifications there are? So <clears throat> NAD um, is in principle also to make it, first of all, quite simple. Also just another legal building block for the RNA. Uh, for our scientists, it's in principle an abbreviation for a nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. That sounds difficult. The structure is also a little bit more difficult. But anyway, sometimes you also learn this already in school because NAD is one important part of the citric cycle. There are a lot of enzymes, so catalysts in a cell that use this NAD also to catalyze reactions inside our body, inside our cells. And the, the beauty of NAD or why we actually started to have a look on NAD was just popping up when I was in my PhD thesis and there was a publication from an American group. And as I already mentioned before, you can put the RNA into small pieces. You can use a small scissor and, and you cut it into single pieces. So you t uh, bring those building blocks back uh, in their normal way that you have them separated and not stick together anymore. And they exactly did this with an RNA. They uh, were cutting the RNA and then they were putting all these building blocks on the balance. So they did mass spectrometry in the end. So this is a really highly sensitive balance. And then they were weighting all these four building blocks. So they, they got the yellow legal block, they got the green, they got the blue and so on. But they also got a fifth one that they were not expecting. And this fifth legal building block was actually the NAD that was there at this time discovered. 
And so this this group actually paved the way for the hypothesis that this NAD might be part of an RNA. So that might be also another building block inside the RNA. But what happens when you cut an RNA into single pieces? You actually don't know what is the function of this RNA. As I already said before, there are so many different RNAs in our human body, for instance, in every organism that is surrounding us. And every RNA is a map for a specific protein, a kind, kind of a construction map. And so it is important if you want to understand the function of a new Lego building block uh, to know the RNA that actually has this building block inside its RNA. And this was the point where we started. We were really eager to, to identify those RNAs which carry this NAD modification. And that wasn't simple. <laughs> so it actually needed three scientists. And here again, um, interdisciplinarity was important. Um, so it was a chemist, Hannah. Um, she's right now in Prague and having their her own lab, which they are also doing uh, yeah, nucleic acid chemistry. Uh, it was Marie, who's also right now in Mainz, having also there her own lab. She was doing a lot of bioinformatics. And it was me in the end who was taking care for the whole molecular biology. And maybe just to stress this, like one project, three people working on it and three PIs in the end. So this must have been like on the one hand, a very difficult project, but on the other hand, also very impactful project, right? Exactly. I mean, there was this classical, what we know from the ERC, high risk, high gain, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it was... If I would say it, it was always perfectly running, I would be a liar. So um, it's, it was really high risk, high gain. We were really putting a lot of effort on it. And most important, you also need to be a lucky puncher. Uh, so you can work hard, but you need to have this little bit of luck. And so we at this time, we were just asking ourselves how we can identify, how we can fish for these novel RNAs that carry this novel building block, the NAD. And in the end, this whole process took five years to really uh, develop a protocol in the lab where we can fish for these RNAs. So you can just imagine that we were putting kind of a magnet on those novel building blocks, and then we were just uh, taking them out, really kind of fishing, yeah? And this worked out. Then we did next generation sequencing. I mean, if you remember, I did this already 2009 and we sent this RNA at this time to New Zealand. <laughs> yeah. <This> we changed. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't send it out to New Zealand. We sent it out to the EMBL in Heidelberg, uh, which was next by. Uh, but this was something that was um, then much faster Nevertheless, again, it took us half a year at this time to get the data. That was in 2013. So still early days of next generation sequencing. And then we got the first RNAs that carry such a modification. And it was also for us really impressive to see that there are really specific RNAs that carry this novel building block. Um, 
If you are then a chemist, you feel like, oh, that's wonderful. We are doing a little bit of mass spectrometry. We really want to see the mass. So we're putting them on the balance. But for me as a biochemist, molecular biologist, I really wanted to see what's the function. And so I was really pushing the project in this direction. Again, getting all the freedom from my PI, Andres Jeschke, to do that, to go in the lab in the morning, to be curious, to have a question that just pops up when you're sitting on a bike and then just go in the lab and try and test it. And so we then really started to, to evaluate what's actually the function of this, this RNA modification. And at this time, I always felt a little bit like uh, Christopher Columbus, right? Mm -hmm. so we, we discovered something totally new. So you're, you're, it, we are discovered a totally new RNA world. Um, of course, Columbus uh, thought it might be India, and then he uh, went to to America. <laughs> uh, but also, when he probably uh, was there, he saw a country, and he didn't know what's actually this country good for. Uh, what are these people that are here? What's the function? What are those plants that are here? And for us, it was the same. So we got all those sequences that carried this novel modification, but those sequences were not telling us so much. Uh, so we really started from the scratch. We needed to establish plenty of methods because no one in the world ever had analyzed this. So it was really like we started to invent the wheel from scratch. So the system you used to look at this um, were bacteria, right? So E. coli. So first, why did you look at E. coli as opposed to yeast cells or any eukaryotes? And then did you find any biases as to which RNA types had this cap? So, so first starting with the E. coli question. So, I mean, this is again based on my background. I was biotechnologist. So... I had a wonderful education in microbiology. Also in Hannover, we had a huge focus in my bachelor time on bacteria. And when I went to Andres' lab, I was thinking, okay, it makes sense to, to establish also some organisms here. So again, started uh, with bacteria and classically E. coli. If you discover something new, you should stick to the classical model organisms. And especially in the field of microbiology, this is the gut bacterium Escherichia coli. So we really thought like, okay, this is fundamental science. And also Escherichia coli, at least at this time, we thought is really well characterized. So if we find RNA, so we might be able to also directly find a function for the modification. We learned our lesson. <laughs> That's not the case. Uh, there are so many things that are not known in E. coli anyway. Um, so that was the reason why we actually had chosen E. coli. Also, you get a lot of RNA from bacteria. It's easy to isolate. So it's also a lot of technical issues that were making this a little bit more easier. Um, in the end, I mean, also people then were looking into different organisms and so on and so forth. But we just started with the with the model organism in the microbiology, and this is the gut bacterium E. coli. Um, and this was, yeah, I think really, really good. 
to do it in that direction and also for the experiments afterwards to then characterize this function to have a model organism that is not that complex is also really helpful as yeah. said we started to invent the rear from scratch so to have at least a model organism which is well characterized where also all the molecular biology techniques are established in the field is really helpful uh, you also had another question is that yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly so the Second question was whether there was any bias as to which RNA types have this cap. Yeah, I mean, this is also the question I always get when I go for conferences, or especially at this time when the story was brand new. Uh, go for a conference, and it's the first question that pops up. And we were curious to also answer this in the lab. Um, so The only thing that all these RNAs uh, have in common is more or less really the, the first Lego building block, the first nucleotide. And um, this is always the NAD um, because this can always be chemically positioned at the start of the RNA because it also functions as kind of a cap, at least in bacteria, similar that I've explained uh, for the M7G cap, this eukaryotic cap. We discovered um, this cap as an NAD cap in bacteria. Uh, something that I had said before, uh, in bacteria, the people, when they were looking into the RNA, there was the clear statement in the textbooks, RNAs in bacteria do not have caps. So these caps that are protecting the RNA from degradation, kind of a helmet, they do not have it. Only the eukaryotic world, so means as human beings, for instance. And when we discovered this NAD, this was completely against the textbook. <laughs> uh, so that was totally new that there is this NAD, and this NAD was even stabilizing these RNAs. So it was really working as kind of a helmet to protect the RNAs from degradation, from those small scissors that are cutting the RNA into small pieces. And this was fundamentally new. Nevertheless, what they really had in common was really this, this first novel building block, the NAD. Uh, we found a variety of different RNAs. Um, as mentioned already before, the RNA is kind of the map to build up the proteins and the cells. So we found a lot of these maps that are finally important for the proteins that are generated. But we found also RNAs, so MAPs, that are actually no MAPs. They have a regulatory function, so they can regulate cellular processes in the cell highly specifically. You can probably just imagine that this might be kind of an RNA that just binds to something else and completely blocks the rest. Yeah, so like a red light um, on the street that everything is stopped. And when the RNA is done, then you get the green light and the process is going on. Um, those RNAs were also modified. So it was a huge diversity. And right now we are still looking into that. So what's actually the function of specific RNAs that carry this modification? Um, what we also were looking into was how are these novel Lego building blocks actually generated? Yeah. So it is not enough just to know that these building blocks are there. You also need to know which proteins, which 
catalysts are able to to put those different building blocks together. And so we also, and also uh, a group in the US discovered that the classical RNA polymerase, so an enzyme machinery, a huge complex, is able to really generate these RNAs inside cells. But we also discovered the first, it's called decapping enzyme. So it's the first bacterial decapping enzyme. It's called um, NUTSI. And um, we just discovered this in bacteria and it is able really to remove this Lego building block, the NAD specifically. Um, and this was again paving then the way to rewrite textbooks in the end to say, first, there are RNA caps in bacteria. They are not only present in us humans, for instance. And there are also enzymes, so catalysts, that are able to remove this cap. Because sometimes it might be also important not to be so stable. Sometimes it might be also quite efficient if someone just cuts you into small pieces that this uh, map, the RNA, is just gone. And this was these were fundamental discoveries that we did at this time, really during my PhD thesis, um, that also allowed us to, to show that this is something highly important and that it might be also important not only to look in E. coli and also to go for different organisms. How widespread are these uh, modifications um, in other organisms and also these... I'll call them readers, write and release enzymes that actually dynamically adjust the NAD capping of RNA. So how widespread is that actually in different organisms? To, to just make it short, we thought at the beginning, this might be just really limited to bacteria because a lot of those things are really specific for, for specific organisms. Also referees uh, were thinking that. <laughs> But I mean... Of course, we are scientists, we are doing experiments. And so we started uh, to look into different organisms. Also, as you already suggested, yeast might be an interesting subject. And not only we started to get, being interested into different organisms, also other teams in the world started to use our protocols to implement them in their labs and then to look for eukaryotic cells, so human cells, plants, um, other bacteria, and I can tell you today that NAD RNAs, so this novel building block, is present in all organisms that we can see. Um, we also now found them in viruses. So it, it really looks like that they're everywhere um, and that there is also always a machinery inside the cells that is able to generate them or also to remove those building blocks. Yeah. So one thing that I found very striking is that NAD RNAs in eukaryotes kind of, as it seems, have a different function to NAD RNAs in um, prokaryotes when it comes to stability. So could you clarify that a bit and also... Give us your intuition for why that might be the case. So I, I think it's really early days still um, to, to have their complete knowledge about it. Um, people who started to characterize NAD RNAs in, the UK, uh, in, in human cells, for instance, saw that 
these RNAs are more prone for degradation that actually this NAD is not a helmet anymore. It's more a signal that the scissor is cutting them into small pieces rapidly. Um, right now, there's not so much research, sadly, going on. Uh, I think it's also hard to, to, to study this because you need to have a lab which is more or less also quite interdisciplinary and still develops a lot of tools. Uh, so there are only a few labs in the world who actually really can, can do that. Um, my hypothesis in that direction is that right now we're just always looking on into the whole pool of a cell. So we are um, killing the cells, we are isolating, extracting the complete RNA. But it might be the case that dependent where the RNA is localized in the cell, uh, this might also change to different stabilities. So the, the way how we are right now approaching these questions might be not the best way to get a final answer. Um, so it, it might be really interesting to, to look into specific transcripts and to really understand this whole machinery. Um, I think we need four or five years more really to, to answer this question. And why is there a difference between bacteria and the eukaryotic world? Um, one point to add on here is, for instance, this, this polyuridin, what I explained before. Um, why is the RNA so much uh, stable in our bodies when we have this pseudouridin inside? The reason for this is that the difference between bacterial RNA and human RNA is the amount of pseudouridins. So the human beings have much more pseudouridin in, inside the RNA than the bacteria. And this is wonderful because when a bacterium is hijacking us somehow, our cells, the cells realize, oh, there's an invader. I need to degrade this. So it might be also here that the cell, the eukaryotic cell, somehow also has a safety mechanism to degrade invader RNA. And this NAD might be one of those signals that shows the cell, oh, there's something bad. We need to degrade this pretty fast. But this is just a hypothesis. We never have tested this, and I also don't know any publication out there. But that's like super interesting. Um, as I said in the beginning, when I came across your research, I was immediately thinking about how I myself could apply this. And I was also thinking from the standpoint of neurons, where you have these very elaborate uh, neurite structures that really compartmentalize the cell, whether something like NAD caps could even serve as a localization signal where like maybe NAD capped RNAs are more likely to be located in the neurites than the soma and the other way around. So what do you think about this idea in general? Really cool idea. I mean, um, localization is, is really something important and one might imagine this NAD uh, to have probably also like, like a, a function as an anchor you know, to, to really anchor in the cell at a specific position and thereby the RNA gets a localization that is let's say uh, at a specific position in the neuron I can tell right now no one ever has analyzed this um, it's not that easy 
I just say it, um, but that might be a, a wonderful question to tackle this in the future. Um, because I, I think, especially in bacteria, um, there are so many RNAs, that specific RNAs, that carry this novel building block. And I really have the feeling that this NAD is not only a helmet, it might be also kind of an anchor for a specific position inside a cell. Yeah, so in bacteria, how many RNAs carry this NAD cap? Like both in total numbers as well as in percentage? So I would say that the percentage is rather low. So probably we're talking here about less than 1% sometimes, but it really depends on the conditions. Uh, so in principle, if you have a bacterium which is in a starvation, so it does not get any any food in principle, it's pretty hungry, then we see that those are NAD levels are really going high. Uh, whereas under different growth conditions, when they're really uh, fast growing, then they're going lower. We don't understand why yet. Um, Could it be for metabolic reasons? I was just thinking that reducing RNA turnover by increasing the stability of RNAs um, via this capping mechanism could maybe be good for metabolic reasons. This is one where we are right now also looking for to, to see if that might influence also metabolism. Um, but these are really early days to, to make there any clear statements. As you already noticed, there are so many question marks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it makes it also so exciting um, because uh, when when you read about that and when you just think about that, you, you come up with so many questions um, that need to be solved. Uh, we can't solve this alone. So I'm always happy if there are also other teams in the world who are really working on those aspects and pushing the whole field more forward. That was part one of my episode with Dr. Katharina Höfer. Thanks for joining us and stay tuned for next week's second part, where we'll discuss a mysterious protein modification Dr. Katharina Höfer found and how this relates to her work on NAD RNAs. If you want to learn more about Katharina's work, please visit the website of the MPI for Terrestrial Microbiology and check out her Twitter. And if you like our podcast, please make sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. We link everything in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. Offspring Magazine, the podcast is brought to you by the Max Planck PhD Net and the science communication working group known as the Offspring Magazine. The intro-outro music is composed by Srina Vankumar and the pre-intro jingle is composed by Gustavo Carrizzo. For any feedback, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to write us at offspring.podcasts at phdnet.mpg.de. Until next week, stay safe, stay healthy. Bye-bye.